to the second grade, you are released to the herd with the Kaufmans. Well, welcome, guys, this morning. Um, we are uh, actually going to be in the book of Colossians. Um, what I had uh, Pastor Tom there read was a good, good segue, a good another portion of Scripture that speaks the same truths that we're going to be looking at uh, today. So in uh, the Black Pew Bibles, um, Colossians chapter 1 is on page 983, 983. Um, but we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 23. And the goal this morning is really to put a, a bit of a cap on the end of the Christmas season. So as we've been looking at the different uh, truths that we've been learning about Jesus um, through these past five times we've gathered for the Advent season, the four Sundays, Christmas Eve. And so as we're wrapping up the Christmas season here at the end of December, looking back at 2013 as we're turning our eyes to the new year that's coming, 2014, what I wanted to do was just come and just camp on, on this one truth uh, to think about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the, the preeminence, the, how he's the ultimate thing, the supremacy of Jesus, and look at how Jesus is the how of Christmas. So what I'm going to do is read our verses for us, pray, and then we will get started. So Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 23. Again, your Black Pew Bibles, that is page 983, I believe. These are the words of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit from Paul to us. Verse 12. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. God, I pray and ask now that you would come and fill us with the knowledge of your will. Fill us in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. God, help us to live lives that are fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of who you are. For the sake of Jesus, 
in our sanctification, please do these things that are sitting here listening. God, I pray for them that you too, God, would do a great and mighty work in their life this morning. May they see Jesus as supreme. May they see Jesus as preeminent. And may they see Jesus being the one who is fully qualified to make us right with God. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, I hope you guys had a tremendous Christmas holiday, and it's glad to be able to see you guys back. We've been able to preach through Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, all the way up to Luke chapter 2, verse 20. And it was a, been a great privilege to be able just to unfold over those, those five times of gathering together what it looks like for Jesus to come. Luke said that was a great place for him to start. He started his gospel there as he was trying to explain things to Theophilus. He wanted Theophilus to see that from the beginning, God's hand was on this, the Holy Spirit was in it, that this was a thing that was happening, coming straight from the throne room of God itself. And we were able to camp on these two chapters and see some great truths about the birth of Jesus and how through this one event, God was once again on the move in salvation history. So, as we wrap up the month of December and bring to a close this Christmas season, I want us to turn our attention again to the birth of Jesus. So, when thinking about Jesus and his birth, it is good for us to remember that the one who was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in that manger wasn't merely just another precious baby boy born to an engaged couple, but to remember that this baby boy had a divine calling that he would fulfill. This baby is the necessary ransom that would purchase salvation for sinners and free them from the bondage of sin. So this morning, as our last act of the Christmas season, I want us to consider the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the how of Christmas. And so in order to do this, we're going to think through these these three terms just to help get our mindset right on why I think Colossians and these mainly these verses and 15 through 20, help show us how Jesus is fully qualified to be the one who would ransom us, pay the necessary price to buy our freedom from Satan's sin and death. So you can think of these three, these three words, the what, the why, and the how. So with the, the what and the why of Christmas, we worked through that when we looked at Luke 1, verse 1, through Luke 2, verse 20. So in those first 80 verses of Luke chapter 1, we really got the what of Christmas. What was going on leading up to Jesus' birth? We saw the events in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph. We saw how God was once again on the move. So when you say, well, what was going on? What what were the things, the facts, the places, the events that were taking place leading up to that event in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20? The what of Christmas comes to us in Luke chapter 1. When you think about the why of Christmas, you can look at Luke 2, 1 through 20. That's what we touched on on Christmas Eve night. Why did Jesus have to be born? We had the what, all the events and the facts, and as Luke is writing his gospel, leading up this big crescendo that finally comes to us in Luke 2, 1 through 20, the why of Christmas is there. Why did Jesus have to be born? Jesus had to be born because he is the ransom who would redeem God's people. This comes to us from Zechariah's song. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for God has visited and redeemed his people 
And we saw in that week that we looked at Zechariah's song that he's connecting some dots for us, and he sees that as he knows Mary has something special in her belly, there's somebody special that's in there that's going to do this great thing. He's connecting some dots for us, helping us see that the baby that is in Mary's belly is actually going to be that baby, the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises, and that with him being on the scene and with the birth of his son, that you have the redemption of God's people, and it's going to be God's people are going to be redeemed because of the work and the person of that baby in Mary's belly. This is why Jesus had to be born. Sinners are in bondage to sin, and our freedom from sin comes at a price, and the price demanded for our freedom was the lifeblood of Jesus. This is why Jesus had to be born. But with our time this morning, what I want us to do is consider the how of Christmas. The how of Christmas. How exactly is this baby worthy to be the mediator between God and man? How is Jesus qualified to be the one who makes peace between God and man through the blood of his cross? So this morning, our goal is going to be to answer the how of Christmas. How is Christ worthy to be the mediator between God and man? How is Christ worthy to be the mediator between God and man? And we'll seek to answer this question by turning our attention to the verses that we read this morning. Colossians 1, 12 through 23. And we're going to divide up that scripture into three parts. So really what we're going to do is look at two bookends in this scripture. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. And we're going to see that God the Father has delivered us. So that's going to be our front bookend. And then we're going to jump to the back end of this portion of scripture that I read this morning verses 21 through 23, and we're going to see that, yes, it's true, the Father has delivered us, and we're going to see that Paul makes much of this fact that the Son has reconciled us, and then sandwiched right in between those two bookends is one of the, one of the most famous Christological hymns that you find in the New Testament, and that's verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1, where we see Paul grabs Jesus and lifts him up and magnifies him and says, this is the one who is qualified, and this is the one who is able to save us. You want to know why Jesus is able to be the one who redeems us? How is he able to be the one who reconciles us? And then Paul just lays out for us a litany of reasons from verses 15 through 20 why Jesus is worthy, the supremacy of Jesus. So that's going to be where we're going this morning. The Father has delivered us, 12 through 14, front book in, back book in. The Son has reconciled us, verses 21 through 23. And then we're going to look at that middle portion, verses 15 through 20, the supremacy of Christ. So first, the Father has delivered us. The Father has delivered us. Look at verses 12 through 14 in your scripture. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Here in these verses, verse 12, 13, and 14, Paul summarizes for us the work of redemption. The Apostle Paul confirms for us the great truth of God's role in our salvation. God alone is the sole author of salvation in men. It is God who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints, to be 
partakers of deliverance, to be transferred into Christ's kingdom, and to receive acceptance with him, the forgiveness of sins. But the question arises, as, as, you're, as I was thinking through these, if this is true, if we need God to be the one who qualifies us, if we don't have an inheritance with the saints unless God qualifies us, if he has to be the one that delivers us, if we need to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, if we don't have acceptance with God unless these things happen, it's not explicit in the text, but what is implicit in verses 12, 13, 14 is that we need these things to happen to us. We're not automatically qualified to just stroll in and be in communion with God because of the sin that is in our heart. So the question arises, why does man need to be delivered from the domain of darkness? Why does man need to be transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son? And for that answer, let's flip back to Genesis chapter 3 and look at the account of the fall. Because what happens there in Genesis chapter 3, what comes to us in this account is the crux of the reason why God is on a mission to redeem from Genesis 3 all the way up to the end of Revelation, the big overarching theme, the big meta-narrative, the big story is God's on a mission. God's redeeming. God's buying back his people. And it ultimately comes to a culmination found in Jesus Christ when you read through things like the Advent stories that we just worked through, when you see through bits and pieces of the New Testament, even in bits and pieces of the Old, but like what we read in Colossians chapter 1, and all of it goes back to this event here. So first off, when you look at Genesis 1, when you see verses 26 through 28, you get this idea. God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Part of the role of Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall was this. There were to be many kings. You had the sovereign king, the creator king, the ruler of the whole world king, and that was God. Then God creates Adam and Eve in his image, plants them in the garden, and says, you are to be my viceroys. The word viceroy basically means in the place of the king. They are to be ambassadors. There are to be many kings. What they were supposed to do was stand underneath God's rule and say, you're the king. We are underneath you. And then God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to be like me, to image me to all creation by ruling, having dominion, and subduing it. And then when you flip over to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, you get these words from God to Adam. But the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have God coming along and saying to Adam now, I'm establishing a covenant with you. Not only are you to be a kingly representative of me to all of creation, you're also to be very priestly in nature as well. You're to keep the garden. You are to guard it. You are to look over it. You're to have welfare for it. So there's Adam and there's Eve standing in a very kingly, priestly nature. And what they were supposed to do was have at it. Dominion. Subdue. Have a lot of babies. Take the glory and the fame of Christ to the four corners of the globe. Continuing to go, God is good, having children, teaching children. Those children having t- children saying, God is good, God is good. And having very, exercising very priestly, very kingly dominion. But what happens? 
you get to Genesis chapter 3, and the fall happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So see, Satan shows up, and what you have here is these two big ideas coming together. You have God's truth, where God says, listen, you have free range with everything in all of creation. Subdue it, exercise dominion. There's one thing that you can't have. And the serpent, who is crafty and who is seeking to undermine the kingship of God over the rule of his creation, shows up and says this, did God actually say I mean, isn't this, this is the root of every bit of sin that shows up in your life. You have God's truth coming to you from Scripture, and then you have Satan come along and going, but does God really say, does, does God really have your best interest in mind here whenever he's asking you to do this? Eve responds rightly, but verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, listen, you will not surely die. Translation, God's a liar. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so there it is, cloaked in in truth. The serpent shows up and says this, Listen, God didn't really have your best interest in mind when he told you, have it everything, but there's that one tree that you cannot eat the fruit of. God actually has ill in store for you in telling you this. And there comes cloaked bait hanging in front of Adam and Eve. And what is the bait? You will be like God knowing this. And so there they are. They have the, they're standing there with this choice. We can trust God knowing and that his goodness, he says, I am God. I am ruling. I am reigning over everything. And not, or you are not God, but I want you to rule under my authority. And ruling under my authority, I'm not robbing anything from you, but ruling under my authority, that is the place where you are going to find the best for you. But Satan comes along, the serpent comes slithering in, and he says this, listen, that's not true. God just doesn't want you to be like God. You can actually be like God if you disobey him. And so there they are, Satan's lie, God truth, and what does scripture say that happens? Boom. They latch out for the lie of all lies, the lie that underlies almost every bit of sin that we ever imbibe in. It's this, you can actually be like God. Did God really say that? Surely God doesn't have that in best in store for you. Then you jump over to verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the God sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. In Genesis 3.22, you have the Godhead taking action against Adam and Eve for their sin. Verse 22 says, because of the fall, because Adam and Eve in that moment said, okay, I'm weighing these things in the balance, and what sounds more true is Satan's lie. They buy into that, and in that moment, the vertical relationship between God and man is fractured forever. The communion and the fellowship between God and Adam and Eve is just completely skewed, and it's thrown off. And so God takes action against them because of this truth. They are no longer in communion with God. 
So God says, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. God takes action to ensure that Adam and Eve cannot and will not live in an eternal state of condemnation and judgment. The Godhead expels them from the Garden of Eden, and through this one event, Adam and Eve are transferred from their state of communion with God into the domain of darkness because they believe the serpents lie over God's truth. And then as they begat children, and those children had children, and those children had children, and those children had children, sinful flesh continues to give birth to sinful flesh, which continues to give birth to sinful flesh down through the generations, down through the ages, down through the time, down to us. So now what we can do is go back to Colossians 1, look at verses 12 to 14, and ask this question. Well, what are the residents of the domain of darkness like? So, like, when I go back and I read Genesis chapter 3, and I see part of the punishment was that comes Adam and Eve, it's like, Adam is going to have some really sweaty brows because he's going to have to work really hard now in the garden. It's like, okay, that doesn't seem too awful bad. And Eve is now going to have, like, um, the curse that she's going to have to bear. She's going to have to have pain in childbirth. I can't speak too much for this. But it's like, well, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's like, well, maybe that's just not, that's not as bad as it could be, right? So is it a bad thing to be marked out in verses 12 through 14 of Colossians chapter 1 as a resident of the domain of darkness? What are the residents of the domain of darkness like, and is it a bad thing to be a resident of the domain of darkness? But if you cast your eye over at verse 21, you read this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, were doing evil deeds. So Colossians 1.21 gives us a pretty bleak answer, and this verse paints for us the plight of man's depravity. Paul describes man's sinfulness, man's depravity, by calling men aliens. We're strangers and outsiders who are out of fellowship with God. He calls them hostile in mind, and this speaks of man's hostile opposition that dwells in his heart and mind. He also talks of the evil deeds that these sinners do, and we see the fruit of alienation and hostile minds through the evil deeds that sinners do because their heart is wicked and far and separated from God. The resident of darkness flees towards sin and pays no heed to God and His commands. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the attitude. This is the mode of operation of the sinful man. And this just isn't true of someone out there. Like what happened in Genesis chapter 3 and what Paul is describing here in Colossians 1, 12, 13, and 14 and verse 21, like even if you're like, yeah, I believe that, but that's true of all those bad people out there, the Bible does not allow you to think this way. The scriptures come to us and say, we are the ones who are in need of redemption because these things that we just talked about, the effects of the fall from Genesis 3, what Paul is saying in verses 12, 13, and 14, and 21 is true of you and is true of me. Like, this is the reflection. When we look into the mirror of the Scripture here, and we look at ourselves in verses 12, 13, 14, and 21, the reflection that comes back is not, hey, all these people back here. The reflection in the mirror of Scripture, when we look into it, is, hey, pal, this is talking about your heart when you are separated from God. This isn't true of all those bad people out there. This is true of us. For those of us who are apart from Christ, this was true of us who are now in Christ before we came to Christ. This is how we were marked out. 
We need to be delivered. We need redemption. And this is what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1. We now have redemption. We now have the forgiveness of sins because we were marked out in this vein as being alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. This is the reason why we need to be redeemed and have the forgiveness of sins. The Father has delivered us. But the second question, the, the, the second bookend, so if that's the front bookend holding up this weighty, meaty truth of verses 15 through 20, the back bookend is this, that the Son has reconciled us. That's verses 21 through 23. So now verses 12 through 14 show us that we are in need of redemption and that God has indeed redeemed us. These verses give us our front book in, but what God has done to redeem us so that we may have forgiveness of sins, what is he doing? And this is where Colossians 1, 21 through 23 come in and give us our back book in. These verses show us that we are reconciled to God through Christ. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The Son, Jesus Christ, has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death, and the enmity that stands between God and man is made right by the blood of Christ. The penalty that you and I deserve for our transgression against God is death. We are the ones who deserve to take the full vent of God's wrath, yet it was Christ who took the blast of God's wrath, not you nor I. Reconciliation, this idea of being reconciled, this thing that comes to us, he has now reconciled you and he has now reconciled me in the body of his flesh, in his death. This idea of reconciliation is rooted in Christ's death. It was the Father who sent him to Calvary, and there he was judged, sentenced, and punished on account of sin so that we could have peace with God. Believing sinners could be made right with God because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Paul is hammering out for us the basic foundational truths of the gospel. Hey, listen, you were nasty. Enmity between you and God. You were an alien, hostile in mind separated from God, Christ shows up on the scene. And because of Christ, you and I are reconciled and made right with God. This is the gospel. God qualified us. God delivered us. God transferred us. It was God who reconciled us through the blood of Christ's cross for our good and His glory. It is God who makes us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the bookends that Paul's holding up for us. And he's sandwiching right in between, right in the middle, this glorious truth. The how of Christmas. You need redemption? God has provided redemption. How has he provided redemption? He's done it through the body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so now when we take this truth bookend 
the front, the bookend, the end, and say, what are these truths holding up for us in verses 15 through 20? It is this, that Christ is the supreme one. The question that we have to ask ourselves now is the how of Christmas. How is Jesus worthy to carry such a load? So I see this here. I need redemption. I need to be qualified to receive the inheritance of salvation. God says, I've got the answer for you. It's Jesus Christ. And I see Paul say, Jesus is the one who makes this done. But then the question that I have is as I'm reading Scripture going, okay, I see that Jesus accomplished it, but how did Jesus accomplish it? How is Jesus worthy to be be the one who carries such a load? How is Jesus qualified to be that one mediator that stands between God and men? How is he able to be that God-man that stands in between two warring parties because of the sin in my heart and the holiness of God? How is God able to do this through the person of Jesus? And it is here in these verses, verses 15 through 20, that we see the how of Christmas. In these verses, Paul speaks about Jesus Christ in a way that reveals Christ's true identity and power. Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And these verses explode with praise by ascribing to Jesus the necessary attributes that elevate him as supreme. This hymn of praise shows us how it is possible for Jesus to be the reconciler between God and man. So starting in verse 15, Paul begins a litany of amazing truths about Jesus Christ that is one of the most concentrated descriptions of glory ascribed to Jesus. And these verses become for us a resume of Christ's qualifications, a six-fold list displaying Jesus's perfect proficiency so that when he died on the cross, he for sure, without doubt, 100% done, made a way for you and me to be right with God. Sixfold way. Six ways that Jesus is qualified to be the mediator, that one who stands between God and man, reconciling us to the Father. And then what we're going to do is just march our way through 15 through 20. So if you just want to look at your verses, I'm going to read them and make some notes as we go through them. But the purpose of this here, as we read this, I mean, you need, to, you need to grasp this fact. Like, this just isn't Paul writing for the sake of writing. This is Paul saying, listen, do you, this is an anchor for the soul. Like, this is the fuel for worship. This is the thing that we stand on when times get hard. This is the thing we stand on when the enemy comes to you and starts telling you the lies from Genesis chapter 3. Did God really save you? I mean, Jesus was like a hillbilly from Nazareth. How in the world could he accomplish salvation? Did God really save you? How is Jesus qualified? And the enemy at some point in time in your life is going to come and he's going to attack that foundation. You can guarantee it. And the place you run to is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Because it is here that we see that Jesus is fully 100% qualified. First, for this reason. Jesus is a qualified mediator because of his nature. 15a, he is the image of the invisible God. 15b, 
He is the firstborn of all creation. That is, he is the specially honored first and only son over all creation. The writer of Hebrews says this. He, the son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How is Jesus qualified to be the mediator between God and man? It's because of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. Second, how is Jesus qualified? Jesus is qualified because of his glory. Verse 16a, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 16b, Jesus is qualified because all things were created through him. 16c, Jesus is qualified because all things were created for him. Third, Jesus is qualified as the mediator because of his eternality. Jesus is qualified because he is before all things, 17a. 17b, Jesus is qualified because in him all things hold together. Fourth, Jesus is a qualified mediator because of his supremacy. 18a, Jesus is qualified because he's the head of the body of the church. Jesus is qualified because in 18b, he is the beginning Jesus is qualified because in 18C, he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is qualified because in 18D, he is in everything preeminent. He is supreme. He is the top. No one trumps him. Jesus stands ruling and reigning as a supreme Christ over all things and all scripture and all salvation. Everything rules and reigns underneath his hand. Jesus, fifth, is qualified to be the mediator because of his fullness Verse 19, Jesus is qualified because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And sixth, Jesus is a qualified mediator because of his reconciling work at Calvary. 20a, Jesus is qualified because he reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Verse 20, part b, Jesus is qualified because he makes peace between you and me and God by the blood of his cross. These are the things that qualify Jesus to be the mediator between God and man. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus so that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus reigns supreme over all things and all things are in subjection to him. These characteristics found in Colossians Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, qualified Jesus to be the one who wields all authority over all things, including the salvation of the Colossians, and subsequently, your salvation and my salvation. And this is Paul's exhortation to the Colossians. Your communion with God rests solely upon the merits of the God-man, Jesus Christ. See, what didn't happen here was this. Paul's saying, hey, we're really ate up. We need to be qualified to receive an inheritance. We need to be delivered. We need to be transferred. We are the ones who are alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. And then what he doesn't do is go back in between these two bookends and write a little song verses, between verses 15 and 20 about how good you are. Isn't it, what we don't read is, hey, isn't it really great that you're so awesome that Jesus wants you on his team? That's why he redeemed you. That's not what Paul says. Paul says the reason why you've been redeemed is because you're actually just so awful and guilt-ridden of sin that you need someone to come and rescue you. 
You need someone to come and transfer you out of the domain of darkness in which you are dwelling happily, and you need the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine on your heart and show you that you need to be rescued. And so he plucks you out, transfers you out of the domain of darkness, transplants you into the kingdom, not because you're awesome, not because you're great, not because you'd be a great team player for Team Jesus playing for the kingdom, but rather quite the opposite, because you didn't deserve it, and I didn't deserve it. And that's good news. That's, that's the how of Christmas. So as we stop here, Christmas behind us, those five times we gathered for Advent, we built up to that crescendo of Luke 2, 1 through 20, and we're elevating Jesus. What we're not meant to do is just walk away with some warm fuzzy about how awesome Christmas is. I mean, it can be that. I'm not denying that, but what it is meant to be is for us to go, man, the how of Christmas, how is this little baby who is lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, how is he going to make me right with God? And Paul comes along in verses 15 and through 20 and goes, this is how, this is how awesome Jesus is, because this stuff didn't just start happening when Jesus turned 30 and went into public ministry. The stuff in Colossians 1 through 15 through 20 was happening when Jesus was nursing at Mary. Like the little baby, the one week old, is sustaining the universe somehow. I mean, this is the great mystery of Christ. And he's the one who's going to go die on the cross for our sins. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the how of Christmas. How is that little baby going to do it? Paul says, brother, I've got a list for you. And he lays it out for us right there in verses 15 through 20. 15 through 20, Colossians 1, that great Christological hymn, gives us the how of Christmas. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the baby born, the Virgin Mary. So when you hear this song, Hark, the herald angels sing, you can see why the angels are pretty excited now, right? I mean, hark, like, this is good news. The little baby, swaddling clothes, manger, hark, everyone, pay attention. We're singing about a little baby. Glory honor, worship that should only go to God. The angels are telling the shepherds, the glory that should only go to God, you should be giving to this baby because this baby is God. In this baby, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn. This little baby is a king. We now have peace on earth and mercy mild. Why? Because God and sinners are reconciled because of this baby. Like That's the good news of Christmas. That's the how of Christmas. And this, in a nutshell, is the gospel. So let me leave you guys with just a couple bits of application, a couple, a couple of thoughts to think through in regard to what we've just heard. One of the simple responses from this, coming straight out of verses 13 and 14, is this. We've just spent the last five weeks looking at the what, the why, and the how of Christmas culminating with the how today. So my question for you is, food for thought, something to go home, pray about, is how has the how of Christmas impacted your life? I mean, the most simplest response to this is, Paul gives us two categories. Either you are dwelling in the domain of darkness or you're dwelling in the kingdom of the beloved Son. So the first act of response is to go, okay, 
To the best of my ability, I truly believe that I have repented of sin, placed my faith in Christ. I see that I am, was, an alien, hostile mind doing evil deeds. I am dwelling in the domain of darkness, seeing that that separates me eternally from God and that I need to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Either of us, no matter who you are, we're in one of these two categories. And that's my first challenge, my first question of response for you. How has the how of Christmas impacted your life? Are you still in the domain of darkness? What kingdom are you a resident of? You're either a resident in the domain of darkness or you're a resident in the kingdom of the beloved son. The other form, I think, of application actually comes in verse 23, where it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's that phrase in there, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If we were to continue working through Colossians and you get to the middle portions of chapter 2, what you'll see is this, that there were false teachers creeping into the church at Colossae. And these false teachers were coming in and teaching false things about Christ. And so you see Paul show up on the scene and go, these people, what they're saying about Jesus, not true. You want to know what the true things about Jesus are? This, lifts up verses 15 through 20. And he says, if you bank your life, bank your salvation, bank your sanctification, bank your glorification from the day that you're born again until the day that you die in this truth, do not shift from this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And this idea behind that word shifting is sort of like the parable of the, that Jesus taught of the guy who built his house on the solid foundation and the guy who built his house on the shifting, the sinking sand. It's that idea of, okay, I'm placing my hope in this, this thing. It seems solid and secure now, but anytime the buffet of life or the winds and the waves of suffering or any kind of just disaster or something I did not plan comes along, it starts chopping and whacking away at that sandy foundation. The next thing you know, the thing that you are propping your life up on, the thing that you're propping your hope up on is actually being washed out from underneath you. And there you are, you find yourself shifting and sinking and going crazy. And what Paul is saying is this, as long as your life is anchored on the solid foundation of the gospel truth that Jesus Christ in him the fullness of God dwelled, and that that qualifies him to be the one to make you reconcile to God and to redeem you, that is the only foundation that you can build your identity in. That is the only foundation that you can build your hope upon. And so he's calling out to the Colossians, listen, there's going to be people coming along with plausible arguments, seeking to fool you and to draw you away from this thing that I'm teaching you, but I'm calling out to you, do not go that route. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So my question to you is... As you think your life, what areas of your life are you resting hope on a shifting, sinking foundation? These truths concerning Christ that we read in verses 15 through 20 are concrete pillars buried deep and resting firmly on the bedrock of our promise-keeping God. If you've ever seen a bridge get built, I mean, they just don't go out there and just slap a bridge up. And they just don't drop concrete pillars. What they do is they dig down deep. They get through that river sludge and that river slime. And they go down and they dig through dirt and they dig through compacted dirt. And they go down, they go down, they go down until they 
hit bedrock. And once they find that bedrock, that unshakable, unmovable earth, then they bring in those concrete pillars, plop it right on the bedrock, and they start, start going, 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 going. Because just think about it. What if they just come along and go, man, we've got like a, I mean, those, those concrete pillars aren't light. Multiple, multiple tons of concrete. But if they just sort of came in and just sort of dropped that and it just sort of goes sinking down, down to the river, even though that concrete pillar is multiple, multiple tons heavy, if it's just resting on the sludge and the slime of the river bottom, that is not a concrete foundation. What they do is they get all that stuff out of the way, they dig down to the bedrock, and they take those pillars and they plant it on that bedrock. And that's what Paul's calling us to. This gospel truth. It is true, it's that concrete pillar. And the bedrock that this stuff rests on is this. God comes along and he says, this is true. This is true of Christ. And I'm not a God who lies. I promise you that this is true and right of Christ. And because that is true and God never lies, we can hold out his promise, take this gospel truth from Paul, verses 15 through 20, land that concrete pillar on the bedrock promises of God and go, I'm anchoring my life to this baby no matter what. I will not budge. I will not move. So my challenge for you again, as you stop and you think, what areas of your life are you shifting or drifting from these concrete truths and resting upon something that is lesser or unworthy that will inevitably fade and fail? The gospel is your only eternal bedrock foundation. What I want to do for you here, just as we, as we wrap this up, Tom's going to come up here in, in a couple minutes and, and do a time of communion. But what I want to do is just dip back real quick to the first sermon that I preached here, and I want to pull forward a portion and then actually do some of this for you because it would be a pleasure for me to do this. We're standing right on the edge, right? So we're closing out 2013. And we're about ready to roll into 2014. And I think just the way that God wired us, we like to have start times, stop times, and think through things. And there's, there's usually a lot of thinking that goes on at the beginning of a new year and the closing out of an old. And so what I want to do is just pray for you. This truth. To pray for you in this way that as you move forward and as you look back in your life for 2013 and go, man, there were some real wins in my life and I thank God for that. Maybe 2013 was just an absolutely horrid year for you. Like suffering, just things that you had no idea were coming. And the tendency to go is, man, God has failed me, or God did not come through. What I want to do is pray for you that your identity would not be wrapped up in the way you thought things should go or the way things did not happen for you, that you thought they should have happened for you. And for some of you, you're standing right on the threshold of 2014, about ready to roll into 2014. Things seem good, but I can guarantee you, just in a, I mean, we're a small congregation, but I can guarantee you some of you are right on the threshold of some unprecedented suffering in your life. I mean, we're just a big enough number. That's just going to be true of somebody. You're going to be right on the threshold of something that's just going to blindside you because you have no idea it's coming. Something that's going to, if you are not rooted and anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this thing's going to come and it's going to smash into your life and you're going to be capsized if your anchor is built on anything other than the foundation of the gospel truths of Jesus Christ 
that we see here in verses 15 through 20. So what I want to do is I just want to take some time to pray for you. This goes back to what I talked about in our first sermon. As we roll into 2014, you're going to hear me saying this more and thinking about this more as this. If we roll into 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 20, and on, but we are not a people of prayer, like, I just need to go find another church. You guys need to go find another church. I mean, what are we doing if we're not a praying people? And so what I want to do is just model for you what it looks like as I pray for you and then I pray and trust that you guys pray for me and Charles and Tom and Brian and Joe. As we're going forward, praying, God, we want to invade our city for Jesus, but we can't do that on our own. We want to see this nation know Jesus, but we can't do this on our own. We want to see unreached, unengaged people groups who don't even know, can't even imagine the person of Jesus Christ. We want them to know Jesus and be saved, but we cannot do that on our own. And so what I want to do is just use this as a launch pad to roll out 2013 and going, man, the how of Christmas is good, but let this continue to be the foundation that shoots us off the 2014 going, because this is good, I want my neighbor to know about this. Because this is good, God, are you calling me to this unreached, unengaged people group that Delta Church is going to? Are you calling me to this country that needs to hear the gospel? Are you calling me to just open my mouth and to invite my neighbor to church? But if you and I seek to do that and go out from here trying to do that on our own, like we're just going to sort of white knuckle and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and go, I'm going to be really diligent to go forward and do this. The enemy is going to sink you because you're doing it on your own power. And the week later, January 7th, when you don't do the very thing you're saying you're going to do now, you're going to think you suck as a Christian. And the enemy wants you to think that because you're trying to do it on your own. And if he can get you to think that you can't do that on your own, therefore it's better to do nothing, then he has won. And that's why we cover stuff in prayer. I mean, good grief, I have nowhere near where I desire to be, and I'm trusting you guys are just as awful as me. But that's why I'm challenging you and me to go, God, please, please do something in our city. Do something in our church. Do something in this state. Bring a revival to Chicago and St. Louis. Give us an eye for an unreached people group and raise up saints who will go, I've got an $80,000 a year job, but it pales in comparison to being able to preach Jesus the first time to this unreached people group. Those are the kind of things that we're wanting you to think and to pray as we go forward. So what I want to do now is I'm just going to take the time, I'm just going to pray for us. Just a pastoral prayer over you guys, and myself included, and I say you guys, because I'm part of Delta just as you are part of Delta. And that as you are praying too, I mean, just don't sit there and be passive. Good grief. Actively pray with me as I'm praying over you. God, what, what am I doing here? What am I doing there? How am I reaching the neighborhood? God, where am I anchoring myself not on the gospel? And then as God does his work in us as a people, praying what Austin was singing for, Holy Spirit, come, consume us, light this place up. And then what we'll do is close out. Pastor Tom will come up, lead us in communion, and then we'll be done. So let me pray for you guys, okay? God, this has been a good year for me. I've seen your hand move, and I've seen great things come about. 
I've seen how you've led and guided my family to this place, and this has just been a good, a good time. And I'm thankful for this church, and I'm thankful for this people who have welcomed me and my family, and God, for that we say thank you. But God, as I as a pastor, helping to lead this church and leading the other pastors, God, as we go forward, my goal and my hope is to anchor who I am on just this good, good time, this good feeling. But I want my life to be anchored on Jesus Christ, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Undoubtedly in this room, some of them are having just a good year. It's very manifest, very tangible, the good things of God in their life. The faithfulness of God. And they can say, I see it here, and I see it here, and I see it here. God, I pray that those would be launch pads of praise. That those things would be moments in their life and thoughts in their life and times in their life where they'd go, man, I see that God is good and I praise God for that. But God, again, for these people in this congregation, I pray that though it would not be the anchor of their soul, but it would be Jesus in that situation. That they would not worship the blessings, but they would worship the one who gives the blessings. And God, for 2013, rolling to 2014, there are undoubtedly some of us here who go, man, 2013 was awful. And there may be some of us here standing on the threshold of 2014 looking and going, we think 2014 is going to yield some good, but they have no clue that in a couple of months, life is going to break loose on them. It's easy to worship and praise God in the blessing, but the truth that comes out of our hearts on where we really stand and what we really believe is when the wine press of suffering crushes down on our soul, what comes out of us? Is it praise or is it woe is me, God has left me? And God, I pray that you would prepare my people and prepare me in those times, whether 2013 was bad or for those of us who are going to experience unexpected discord, suffering, hurt, failure, separation, that when those things come barreling down on us, crushing us, pressing in on us, that we would be a people who don't buy the lie of Satan, but we would hold to the truth of Christ. We would press into Christ. We would see that this is meant to draw us close to Christ. That God is not against us, but God is for us because we are in Christ. God, I pray for this church. Good grief, God, if we're just sitting here doing nothing, God, shut us down right now. But God, my hope and my trust is that you see us as an outpost of the kingdom that's pushing back darkness in this place. That's pushing back darkness in our neighborhoods, and in our city, in our state, and in this nation, and to the world. God, use us as agents for the kingdom of Christ. Use us, 
now. Fill us now. May this be a body of believers who are holding fast to the hope of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. If we are doing things on our own accord, it will fall and it will fail. God, now in this place, show us. Root sin out of us. Dig it out of us where we are anchoring on anything other than Jesus. Get that out of our lives. Break us down, discipline us as dear children who belong to the Father so that we would grow and be stronger and be people who go and live and show in a winsome way that all else fails in comparison, but Jesus Christ is the one who lasts for eternity. God, please may that our heart beat. God, we love you, and I thank you for this people. God, draw the lost to this place. Draw us out of this place to the lost. And may we be agents advancing the good news of Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation for our city. And in Jesus' name, I pray these things for my brothers, sisters, and myself.